Well, this morning we're going to continue our series in Jeremiah. So if you've got your Bible with you, um, open up the app or turn to the page. In the Red Church Bible, it's page uh, 100, no, 777. We're in chapter 18. Okay, let's read from Jeremiah, chapter 18. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house, and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house, and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict disaster, inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the goods I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of, the, of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Inquire among the nations. Who has ever heard anything like this? A most horrible thing has been done by virgin Israel. Does the snow of Lebanon ever vanish from its rocky slopes? Do its cool waters from distant sources ever cease to flow? Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which make them stumble in their ways and in the ancient paths. They made them walk in bypaths and on roads not built up. Their land will be laid waste, an object of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will shake their heads. Like a wind from the east, I will scatter them before their enemies. I will show them my back and not my face. In the day of their disaster, they said, Come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priest will not be lost, nor will counsel from the wise. Nor the word from the prophets. So come, let, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. Listen to me, O Lord. Hear what my accusers are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? Yet they have dug a pit for me. Remember that I stood before you and spoke on their behalf to turn your wrath away from them. So give their children over to famine. Hand them over to the power of the sword. Let their wives be made childless and widows. 
Let their men be put to death. Their young men slain by the sword in battle. Let a cry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring invaders against them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and hidden snares for my feet. But you know, O God, all their plans to kill me. Do not forgive their crimes or blot out their sins from your sight. Let them be overthrown before you. Deal with them in the time of your anger. I'm just going to pray before Phil comes and speaks to us. Heavenly Father, speak to us now, we pray. May our hearts be drawn closer to you as we're challenged and molded by your words. Oh God, may you step forward from the pages of your words and Father, by your spirit, work in our hearts now, we pray. Strengthen Phil now in sharing your word with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, James. If you could have your Bibles open to that passage, we're going to look at it together now. For those of us here who have been away or are visitors, we're spending our Bible time on Sunday mornings for the next few weeks looking at this book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet of Judah who was sent to warn his people that judgment was coming from God because they as a nation had had turned away from him. The year was about 610 BC, and the country of Judah was in turmoil. Politically, the Egyptian empire to the south felt threatened by the Babylonian empire to the north, and so their armies started marching towards one another. And right in between them was the nation of Judah. So throughout the years that this conflict between Egypt and Babylon was going on, Israel was the kind of stopping post for invading armies. Politically, the country didn't know who to side with. Spiritually, Judah was in turmoil as well. For years, the people had rejected God's ways and they'd replaced him with false idols. And in, 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 this, in this political turmoil and making peace treaties with nation after nation and, uh, and political power after political power, what had also happened is that they had imported these other gods from these foreign nations. And with those gods had come idolatrous practices such as child sacrifice and sexual fertility rights, which God had never intended for his people ever. Jeremiah was called by God to preach God's word to this people. To this people who had rejected God and his ways. And what was Jeremiah's message that was so violently opposed in this passage? It's simply this, and this is what Jeremiah tells the people. God is sovereign. And they had to decide whether they would work with God's sovereignty or against it. That's his message. It's simple. And it brings us to our first point because it's, it's such a, a, a um, what's the word? Such a, 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 a unusual thing to be preaching on in these times and days. The idea of God's sovereignty is not necessarily the most popular uh, doctrine um, to preach uh, in, in a sermon in England this, uh, this, these days. But this is God's word. We're going through Jeremiah. 
we've come to this chapter and we've stopped and therefore God wants us to listen to what he has to say about his will and his decree and his sovereignty. I hope this morning that by the end of our time this morning, we will be lost in wonder, love and praise. Because God's word has, has revealed our God to us and is calling us to humbly submit and to love him, love him for his ways, for his will, for his sovereign power and glory at work in this world. And that's our, our first point this morning is simply this. We need to understand God's sovereign will. We need to understand God's sovereign will. Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's studio and watch a potter at work. And this is what happens in verse 3. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw his working at the wheel. But the pot that he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, or Judah, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. It's a humbling message, isn't it? God says to Judah, his people, uh, that's another word for Israel, that even though they had rejected his ways and had turned away from a close relationship with him, they were still his people in his hands and he would personally shape them by his will. And it's a glorious picture because it tells us God is not static in this world. It's not as if he's taken the world like a clockwork toy, wound it up, put it on the ground and then walked away and allowed it to unwind in its own way. God is not like that. No, he is at work shaping personally by his hands at work in this world. That is the picture we have of the potter and the clay. And in order to understand that better, I want to explain two Slightly technical terms. I don't do technical often, okay? So bear with me, work with me, listen hard, and you'll get it and hopefully understand how this all works. The first technical term I want to understand to, I want us to understand is the, is the term sovereignty. God's sovereignty at work. That simply means his authority. When we talk about a sovereign, we talk about a king. So when we talk about God's sovereign rule and his sovereign will, we're talking about his authority in this world at work. That's pretty cool, isn't it? The second, the second term is, is the, the, the term his, his will. What do we understand by the term will? Well, it means God has a plan. It means he knows and shapes the past, the present, and the future. All events are sovereignly created by him and are controlled by him according to his good will, like a potter molding clay on his wheel. To be even clearer, theologians call this big picture plan God's will of decree. God's will of decree, his expressed plan, his purposes that cannot be changed. In holiday terms, it's like the roadmap of Britain that gets you to your holiday destination. 
It's the big picture purposes of God, God's will of decree. So when we look at the Bible, we get glimpses of what that looks like. When we look particularly at Revelation, we know that at the end times, Eden, which the Bible starts with, will be restored. Eden is coming in the future. Christ will be united in the church in that big picture plan, and his purpose is to reign It is for his people to reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth forever. God's will of decree is that sin will be vanquished and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's joyous, it's beautiful, it's good, God's will of decree. And yet, as well as God's will of decree, there is also God's will that we obey him. And that's what theologians call his preceptive will. That comes from the words precept, which means his law. So what we mean by his preceptive will is God's desire for us to work with his plan and not against it. Compared to that big road map, it's like an ordnance survey map. The details are plotted within that grand plan. So in his preceptive will, God gives us details of how we can work with that big Uh, um, decretive will. We can listen to his word. We can love his son Jesus and give our lives wholeheartedly to allowing his spirit to fill us and guide us. And God wants us to share his love by loving one another. That's his preceptive will, the detailed ordnance survey map. His ways shared with us day by day that he would prefer us to follow. And we can either listen to his preceptive will and work with his plan or reject it. But we have to remember, either way, God will use us. And that brings us to our second point. We need to understand how God's preceptive will works. How his will works. So as Jeremiah watched the potter, it became clear that there was a sequence to to what he was doing. Firstly, as the potter sits at the wheel, he's a specific shape in mind. My, my granny was a potter, uh, and, and she would... <laughs> my granny's amazing. Uh, she, she was a potter, and she would grab a lump of clay, go to her wheel, and she'd thump it down um, with immense force. And then she'd sit there, and she would have in her mind what she wanted that lump of clay to look like. She'd, she'd either get a massive bit, uh, thump it on the wheel, and, and that would turn into a bread bin, Um, or a little bit, and that would turn into the countless mugs that she would work. She had a clear idea of what that clay was going to look like when she had finished working it. In the same way, that's what Jeremiah observes in this potter. He's at his wheel, and he's working it. He's got a specific uh, shape in mind. But the clay doesn't work. It doesn't do what the potter wanted. So the last section of this, of this parable, as it were, is, is that the potter makes a different pot. And God uses that picture to show us how Judah, um, and Judah works with his prescriptive will. God has a big plan. The question is, will Judah work with that big plan by being obedient or not? Their decision would determine how God uses them within his decretive will, his big plan. So look at verse 7 with me. 
If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil wonderfully, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Positively, nations that listened to God's warning and repented were saved from judgment. You find that in the book of Jonah. That's exactly what happens in the book of Jonah. And the nation listens to God's warning and God relents of the disaster that he planned for it. Positively, nations that listened to God's warning were saved from his judgment. But verse 9 tells us the reverse scenario also takes place. If at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Negatively, in history, nations that didn't listen to God's warning brought God's judgment upon themselves. So there are two ways to live. Either to listen to God's will, his law, and live, or reject his law and come under his judgment. God's promise here is that the people will still be used in God's plan, but not in the same way as if they were obedient. That's the choice that Jeremiah offers in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. Now therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I'm preparing, literally the word is shaping like that potter with his clay, a disaster for you and devising a plan against you. So turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. So God uses that picture to illustrate the offer that was before them. Listen to God's word. Or be a wonky blob of clay that God would shape disaster against. And the sad thing is that in verse 12, God knows they would reject his preceptive will. But they will reply, it's no use. We will continue with our own plans. We will all follow the stubbornness of our evil hearts. And because they rejected his will, he would bring judgment upon them and use them differently in accordance with his greater plan of salvation. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. My people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways in the ancient paths. Those idols made them walk in byways on roads not built up. Their land will be an object of horror and of lasting scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and shake their heads. Now I realize this teaching is difficult because it seems that God's love is missing from the picture. But we have to remember God didn't have to warn his people about where their actions would lead. God didn't have to send Jeremiah. So when you look at it from that perspective, this is a loving, loving God sending a loving, loving warning to his people. It's a bit like a a sign on a beach that says, don't swim here, there are sharks out there. That's a careful warning. It's a caring warning. I don't want you to get bitten by a shark. If you swim in this sea, you will do. But there's also a promise in these verses. Because although God's 
God's um, prophet goes to God's people and he preaches his heart out to them. And he tells them about the love of God and the care of God and the desire that God would use them in his decretive will. And if, he, if they listened to him, they would, they would be drawn into a loving, careful, wonderful relationship with him. He knows that they're going to reject him and yet he still uses them to bring about his great will of decree. There is a loving God. There is a caring God. There is a God who even uses the rejection of his his perceptive will to bring about his great and good purposes. Eden restored, a beautiful, wonderful new creation that God will bring about one day. There is God's loving, loving, loving love. And it, it, it forces us to ask, what do we do with it? What do we do here and now today? Well, the first thing is, don't shoot the messenger. In other words, just because this is a different, a different message, a difficult message, and just because it might be difficult to understand or stomach, we're not to reject it out, outright. Because that's what the people in, in Jeremiah's day did. Look at verse 18. They said, come, let's make plans. There's that word again, isn't it? Great. That's kind of right throughout this passage, there's that play on the word plans and intention. They kind of work in, interdependently, but come, let's make plans against Jeremiah. For the teaching of the law by the priest will not cease, nor will counsel from the wise, nor will a word from the prophet. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. So they arrogantly think that if they get rid of him, we get rid of the truth, or we get rid of his message. There's plenty of other prophets, there's plenty of other priests, there's plenty of other teachers of the law, they'll tell us what we want, let's get rid of Jeremiah, so his irritating uh, uh, voice is, is, uh, is silenced. But they're silly, aren't they? It's, they're like children who hide under a blanket to make the scary thing go away. Shooting the messenger, silencing the truth, doesn't make the truth any less real. And many Christians today deny God's sovereignty and his decretive will as this passage explains it. One of the reasons is, particularly for Western Britain, our culture is so fierce about self-determinism. And because of that, we end up thinking that if we believe that God controls and uses our choices to bring about his sovereign plan... It sounds like he's a calculating despot, not a loving God. Another reason is because we don't like the idea of a God who is so involved in circumstances and in the evil of this world. We don't like the idea that God created Hitler and Chairman Mao, just like he created the apostles and Mother Teresa. And because it's such a big issue, because the doctrine is so disliked in our culture, actually what we find is we don't talk about it. We become like children who hide under a blanket. But the problem is that, with that is that we don't, we don't find ourselves really wrestling with these truths. And we don't find the strength that this truth particularly gives us in difficult times. So the challenge is not to be like Jeremiah's hearers, not to reject this truth simply because we don't like it. God is sovereign. We may not understand it. We may be, be confused by it. But that is a good place to be. 
And if that's where we are this morning, then isn't it mind-boggling that we can take that confusion to a God who loves us and we can speak to the creator God who sustains the very heartbeat in our, our souls knowing that he, he listens. I love that contrast between uh, um, verses in the Bible like, uh, um, like in Genesis. When, when, it's, when, when we get to day four, the, at the end of day four, we just have this kind of throwaway comment, oh, he, he also made the stars. It's, it's like God kind of was about to close the door on day four and he went, oh, oh hang on, I just missed something. Stars, thank you very much. And then finished. I love that power. When you, con- when you contemplate the, the number of stars and the power at work in the universe, God ignited each of those stars into flame and sustains them in the very place where they hang right now. That is God's power at work in the universe now, here, right here. And yet you and I can approach him like a little child and talk to him, knowing that he, in his sovereignty, in his power, in his glory, in his majesty, knows every single word on our lips before it is said. There is his intimacy. There is his sovereign power. And we can bring all our confusion before him and say, dear Lord God, most merciful Father, Lover of my soul, will you hear and know my confusion right now in my circumstances? There is the beauty of the doctrine of God's decretive and perceptive will and his sovereignty. But it leads us to the second application this morning. Just believe in and be humbled. I've I've mentioned it already. But God is, is sovereignly in control over us, over you and I. Let me read a few verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We may do all the thinking we want, but where we go is determined by God. The lot is cast into the lap, the dice thrown across the table. But every decision is from the Lord. It's even more specific. We try rolling the dice. We draw lots. We we put out pieces of cloth on the ground. But the point is here. Whatever means we use to determine our path, it's going to be God's will in the end. Every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. In other words, people everywhere are planning and doing, but what stands consistently above them all is God's decretive will. Big roadmap. Little ordnance survey map. Jeremiah 10 verse 23. Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It is not for them to direct their steps. These are comforting words that tell us that God is in control in this universe and has put all people in time and space at his command by his will. It's comforting to know that every step we take is commanded by our loving, sovereign God. But that brings us to our third and last point this morning, and it's simply this, that God's sovereignty does not deny the responsibility of man. God's sovereignty does not deny the the, the responsibility of man. 
We have to understand that the Bible also teaches us that we are responsible for our actions. A great description of this lies in Acts 4, verse 27 and 28. If you want to turn that Turn to that passage in, in your Bibles. Just keep your finger in Jeremiah. But, but turn to Acts 4, 27 and 28. I'll read it to you in a second. But look at it there with me. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. People will be held responsible within the sovereign plan of God for murdering Jesus. And it means that there is a mysterious conjunction of two things at the same time. God's deliberate plan, his decreed will and purposes that Jesus would suffer on the cross for the sins of many people and human responsibility within that plan. The desire of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel in Jerusalem who wanted Jesus dead. And it brings us back to that picture of a potter and his clay in Jeremiah 18. You see, God tells the people of Judah that they could not exist and work outside of his will, no matter how hard they rebelled against him. So the question is, are you going to work with me? That's Jeremiah's challenge to the people. Are you going to listen to God and obey him or rebel against him? It goes back to that offer on the table that we, we looked at last week. God's, God's, uh, you see, to work with God is to listen to his perceptive will, to obey his laws and commands and to do them, and to work in harmony with God's purposes and plan, and to know him intimately and work in a loving relationship with him. That's his perceptive will. That's what God longs for his people to do. Today and now, his perceptive will is each day as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. That is God's perceptive will that we pray each day. Do we walk in it or not? And I guess it brings us to the the, the final application. The final application is, is joy. It's, it's simply this. Be humbled by it. Be humbled by it. One of Job's comforters, one of his friends, describes God's sovereignty in this way. Job 36, verse 13 to 15. Job 36, verse 13 to 15. Who appointed him over the earth? The answer is Nobody. Who put him in charge of the whole world? The answer is nobody. If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to dust. What he's simply saying is there's no higher authority, there's no greater power, there's no greater comfort when we're faced with the complexities of this world and its evils in all its different forms and we're to bow down in worship, in humility, at God's sovereign plan, his decretive will, his perceptive will. 
to bow down in worship and to be completely humbled by this God we serve and know. And in that humility, let's take comfort. All things that we are going through right now, and I know and I understand so much of the pain that is here this morning. And let me say it again, we look as though we're a whole sorted bunch of people, but I tell you what we're not. Because we're sinners in this world, we are all going through pain and strife and suffering that none of us know of. We can be honest about it. We can be real about it. I hope this is a safe place where we can share those sufferings that we are experiencing. But take comfort from this great plan of God. One day it will end. Not because of some random chance, but because God has planned it. One day the suffering we experience now will be will be brought in line with God's goodness and we will see that he has brought good from it. Just like he brings good from his people's suffering as they go through his judgment. We're to be comforted and humbled by that plan. I once heard a Rwandan minister say that in the middle of the genocides 20 years ago, the greatest, greatest comfort he had was to know God's control was restraining the evil at work around him. And that his plan would bring those murderers either to salvation or to justice. And in the end, God would bring about a greater good that the people of Rwanda had no idea lay ahead. And it struck him in the middle of it. To believe otherwise is to trust in a helpless God who's just looking on. The only right responsibility, the only right response to this picture of God's sovereignty, the potter at the wheel, turning his clay, is to bow down before God, lost in wonder, love and praise, humbled by the complexity, but convinced by his control. That the concept of God's sovereignty blows our mind, that's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's disturbing. But it tells us God is bigger than we are. And he's to be obeyed and adored. Just as he has lavished his adoration upon us through his obedient son, Jesus. Well, once again, we're having to listen to the wisdom of a talking animal, Mr. Beaver just as a way of explanation, for those who weren't here last week, we ended with this again. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy, Peter, and Susan were told they were being taken to Aslan. And Susan asked that question, is Aslan the lion safe? And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. God is unsafe. He's untamable, majestic, powerful, dangerous, and mighty angels fear to tread in his presence because of his holiness. But let's hold all these descriptions of him in tension and tremble because over all his characteristics, 
undergirding all his power, we must remember God is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is humbling and fearful to be allowed to speak to you with such intimacy and such confidence. Lord God, we bow this morning before your feet, trembling because we know your power at work in this universe, trembling because we know your plan at work in this universe, humbled because your ways are greater than our ways, your will is greater than our will. And Lord God, we are, we are also comforted because in all the strife, in all the struggles, in all the suffering that we face, if not today, certainly tomorrow, Lord God, you are God. And we worship you this morning and bow before you this morning. Father, you are our king. You are our highest authority. And we seek most of all to see your will done in our lives. Father, teach us, I pray, above all things, to to, to live according to your will, your perceptive will. To be drawn into line with the way that you want us to live and to obey your word and to listen to your voice and to speak by your Holy Spirit for your glory. Oh, Father God, use us, we pray. Work in us, we pray. Draw us to yourself, we pray. Allow us that sweet, sweet fellowship of love, we pray, so that as pots, as as clay in the potter's hands, Lord God, we would work according to your will. Mold us and shape us, we pray, Lord God. We beg of you, because you are the great potter. Oh, Father God, most merciful heavenly King, we bow before you and surrender our will to your will, our sinful desires to your glorious purposes and long more and more and more and more that you would work in us to shape us to your likeness and work through us that your decretive will might be, might be brought about in small ways by using us. 
Father, we pray this for the sake of your glory. May your will be done. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's only right that we stand together and we take our will and we say to ourselves, Will, look at yourself and praise, praise the King of Heaven. That's what our final hymn demands. It says, Soul, praise the King of Heaven and bring all that you have to his feet because he has ransomed us he has healed us he has restored us he has forgiven us and therefore who else in this universe deserves praise let's praise him let's praise him let's praise the everlasting king together let's stand together and sing praise my soul the king of heaven <laughs>